the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. Yes, he is indeed. Check my ID at the door. Let me in anyway. (laughs) How are you? Welcome. Welcome to the 25th day of... April, it's Tuesday, and another edition of Lifeline unfolding before your shell-like ears, and uh, lots to talk about on today's program. I, I want to start with a bit of a, a sidebar. First, we've had a number of nice notes related to our tributes to the late Dr. Charles Stanley, which we broadcast on this program last Friday. Some people saying, where can I get that audio? Podcast. Check out the Lifeline podcast. Go to kfax.com. There you will find a heavily airbrushed photograph of me taken back in 1936 or 37 thereabouts. And uh, if you click on the podcast page uh, next to my picture, you can download a copy of that or share it with friends, whatever the case might be. So uh, we appreciate, again, uh, the nice comments and uh, tributes to uh, to Dr. Stanley. I will mention I, I interesting comment um, the other day. Today, um, we heard from um, somebody who'd been a longtime supporter of Dr. Stanley, and they kind of lamented and said, well, now that he's gone, I'm going to put my monthly support somewhere else. Let me ask you to kind of rethink that for a moment. Um, I don't know all the inside baseball story relationship to what the plans are for in-touch ministries, though I can tell you that Dr. Stanley retired from uh, full-time pulpit duty about three years ago. But the messages that he shares are timeless, and not unlike Dr. J. Vernon McGee, there is the capacity for this organization, this ministry, to continue on for years, decades to come. So uh, don't assume with Dr. Stanley's passing that the ministry of In Touch will cease. I would suspect, in fact, that it has uh, as many years ahead of it as it has behind it and would encourage you to continue to uh, to support that ministry or organization. If you've been blessed by Dr. Stanley, then uh, my goodness, now is the time to not only shoot a note and uh, let the staff and leadership of In Touch know that, but also to continue and prayerfully support their ongoing work, uh, not only here in the Bay Area, but across the planet, and particularly um, as uh, they look to the next chapter of that ministry. All right, turning a corner to an important topic. When you were a kid, for some of us that goes back a long ways, but when you were a kid, undoubtedly there were times when you told lies. Mom or dad would say, well, before you were allowed to play outside, have dessert, whatever, did you do your homework? 
And I'm sure there are many occasions when you kind of crossed your fingers behind your back and said, well, of course I did, when in fact that was a lie. Later on, you would come to discover that adults frequently did what we call little white lies. You know what that is? Uh, when the neighbors down the street invite you to come over for a, a, a gathering for dinner or a weekend barbecue, and you just don't feel like going, and the husband's a little bit obnoxious. And so rather than just come out and say, we don't like you, we don't want to come, you make up a lie. You say something like, oh, I would love to make Is that Saturday? Oh, I'd love to make it. But, you know, I'm feeling a little under the weather. You make up a little white lie. Is there a difference between the two? Well, I suppose there are degrees to which lies can be little white social type lies. And then there can be lies that lead to libel slanderous speech, libel being written, speech being slander, that defames a person and seeks to cause injury. This, of course, is something that we've seen a lot, not only in the American politic landscape of recent years, but certainly amplified in social media. Is there any boundary? Is a lie just simply free speech? that somebody's making up? And if so, if there's no proven victim, can it necessarily be considered injurious? I think the answer to that is no. But what about the broader question in terms of looking at people who engage in falsehoods, intentionally so. Some might say they do it for comedy's sake and for a reaction, but others might wish to, for example, sway the outcome of an election. Should there be limits to all of this? It raises, indeed, many interesting constitutional questions. So why not turn to a constitutional historian for some insights? He is a best-selling author for many, many years, syndicated talk show host, and um, his pedigree includes um, being a CPA and a lawyer, and he joins us now to uh, to delve into this critically important topic that could potentially have a chilling effect on every aspect of Internet speech, just dependent upon what direction all of this heads in. Joining us now is Bob Zadek. Bob, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks a lot for having me, Craig. It's always a pleasure to be here. You're very kind to invite me to join you. This is an interesting topic because, you know, it, it, it gets into questions, as I, I alluded to, related to well, when and are there practical times of restrictions, quote unquote, on free speech? We know, for example, in, in historical context, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, you have a right to uh, express yourself and engage in free speech and it's part of your First Amendment right. But, you know, there are restrictions. You can't get up into a crowded theater and yell fire and call it free speech because it could create havoc and panic and people could get hurt as they're trying to run from an imaginary fire. And I suppose if we take that example to the nth degree, well, if you said that and there wasn't truly a fire taking place, uh, that's a lie. So what happens when you lie on the Internet and you do so with the intent of either damaging another's 
reputation or trying to sway the outcome. Now, I guess we can argue, Bob, that politicians do it all the time, maybe even used car salesmen <laughs> do it all the time. But what of the broader question of can there, could there, should there be either civil and or criminal penalties when people lie knowingly on the Internet, in social media, for example, and they do so with the intent of trying to, for example, in this case, sway an election? Yeah, the question is is made a bit more complicated because you started off by saying, should there be? And well, what are the standards by which, what are the standards one applies to answer that question? Would it be a nicer place would the planet be a nicer planet if if we prohibited uh, nasty speech? I guess, perhaps. Uh, so, but that's not the test. We start with a premise that it is it is beyond discussion that in general, government should not, or only under certain specific circumstances have anything to say about speech. It has just been decided that one of the rights people enjoy simply because they are human beings is the right to say what they wish. We start there. That's freedom. However, I have the freedom to do whatever the heck I wish to do with my fist. That freedom stops, stops where your nose starts. So there are limits. I can do whatever I want with my fist, except, and now the except gets discussed. Why is there an except? Because my freedoms can only be done, exercised, so long as it's not at the expense of your freedoms. So that's the balance. So now let's get to speech. That we start with unlimited speech is a starting point, not an ending point. But just like I am free to swing my fist, we have a law that says if I punch you and harm you or just punch you, I have committed a crime. Because as a society, we have decided that balancing my freedom to swing my fist with your right to have an unbroken nose, the unbroken nose wins. We make a balancing test. Okay, now we're back to speech. So the first issue is, should government do something? Well, we start with a presumption that the answer is no. Well, hold this a second. Why should the answer be no? Well, if I harm you physically the government doesn't have to enforce it you have civil remedies you can sue me because I did a bad act that hurt you and under tort law you have a claim fair enough and the civil courts work it out why the civil courts better because it's much better to work things out without somebody using a gun we sue each other and we resolve it When government get involved, somebody has a gun to arrest you. Now, let's talk about uh, more serious speech, lying. Well, we start off with 
government doesn't care if you lie. The marketplace, society will work that out. But we start to have mission creep and we have stolen valor statutes. You can't lie about having a purple heart, having earned a purple star. Because we have decided the harm to that sacred heart is sacred enough. We have to preserve its value. And we have decided, rightly or wrongly, yes, you can lie about to your friends or in an interview about having a college degree when you don't. That's not a crime. But you can't lie about having a purple heart. Because society has said you crossed over a line. So it's always a balancing. And the issue about uh, lying on social media is primarily one to be resolved by civil law. That is, if I say something on the media that harms you, you may you may have a claim and you you identify it as libel or slander and you correctly distinguish the two one is written one is all and there's a civil remedy so if i harm you physically you have a remedy and if i harm you by my speech you have a remedy if you can show that you're damaged if i just said something that hurt your feelings or that caused your friends to stop inviting you to dinner, you probably don't have a remedy because the law is not so concerned about emotions as they are about physical well-being. So therefore, the law has decided that there are civil remedies for some kind of speech and not for others. Where we are today is the government, as it continually accumulates power, is now by, in some people's tests, crossing lines and starting to interfere with free speech rights. And we know there is the First Amendment of the Constitution, which says governments basically cannot interfere with free speech rights. Now, exceptions are called out, but we start with that strong standard. And one interesting point, in the entire world, in the entire world, we are far and away the country with the most protective bodies of law regarding free speech. We do not criminalize hate speech, for example. Most of Western Europe criminalizes hate speech because they do not have the same tradition of honoring free speech than we do. So we are accustomed to having almost unfettered free speech and we are proud of it. That's who we are. What's fascinating about all of this, and I want to dig a little bit deeper, Bob, when we come back after the break, is when this begins to move into political territory. We know certainly that over the last couple of election cycles, many of the social media platforms we're all familiar with, Twitter, Facebook, uh, even Instagram to a lesser degree, have attempted to try and police certain aspects of speech. Some of that has had to do with COVID-19, uh, 
certainly even to a degree in the political arena, though, as I suggested in my opening remarks, politicians, we know they lie all the time. They lie on their way to becoming a politician, and they lie during the time that they're seated in office, and they generally lie when they leave. It's interesting to note that Michigan, Michigan looks at lies by candidates for judicial office as a lie that can be punished. So what about the broader question related to what happens if we lie on social media outside of personally defaming somebody, which, again, can can move you into a position where you're going to be civilly liable if they choose to uh, to take you to court over it. But what if you lie on social media in an effort to try and influence the outcome of an election, sway people's behavior? Is there potential criminal liability there, given the fact that your lie, your intentional lie, indeed had an outcome, and and maybe even arguably the outcome that you were hoping for, in that you dissuaded somebody from voting for a particular candidate or standing on behalf of a certain proposition with information that is made up out of thin air. We'll talk about that next. Bob Zadek with us tonight. He, of course, best-selling author. He is an expert on the United States Constitution, probably one of the most... um, well-read constitutional historians that I know. He's also by trade a CPA and a lawyer. We are talking about this topic of what happens when you lie on social media if it goes beyond just simply defaming somebody that would come under um, uh, libel laws, defamation, things of that sort, to what happens if it influences an election. We'll talk about that and more as this edition of Lifeline with Bob Zadek continues in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lies oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes have consequences to them. If you lie about an individual and you defame their um, their reputation, they may choose to go after you in um, civil proceedings. And um, the judge may be come along and say that you have uh, caused injury here and as a result have to pay a penalty of some sort. We know that in advertising, if you lie, um, you don't always get caught, but uh, if you say the right kind of lie, the Federal Trade Commission can enter in and there can be penalties. But what about online? You know, people people lie and exaggerate all the time. They shave pounds off their weight, add inches to their height, um, may even lie on their resume to a certain degree. But what if you lie online in social media and you do so not uh, the little white lie categories we talked about earlier, but with the intent of trying to manipulate let's say, the outcome of an election. What if you create a deep fake that has Biden saying something that he never said, and you do it because you're hoping to scare people away from voting, for example? There is a case that's relatively infamous related to some memes that were created that were attempting to try and persuade African-American voters to think that they could vote by not going to the polls during COVID, but rather by simply texting their vote. Of course, it's complete nonsense, but 
talk about having a significant impact potentially on the outcome of an election. If enough people have been persuaded in a tight enough election, it could throw the results of the election. So is this a case where there should be restrictions? Well, as we're learning from Bob Zadek, uh, traditionally, historically in America, uh, we have placed very high value on freedom of speech, sometimes even acknowledging that we're allowing people to say things that's way out there, but we nevertheless protect their rights to do so in honor of the foundation of our nation, the principles upon which it was created, and, of course, our First Amendment rights. But is there a field too far? And, Bob, let's talk a bit about that. We know that certainly there's been, as I alluded to before the break, attempts by Twitter and Facebook to try and restrict speech to a certain degree related to these kinds of manipulations or lies. But do we need to revisit the broader notion of penalties for someone who lies not just for the sake of lying but for the sake of manipulation? And and if so, who ultimately becomes the final argument? on that since it can become very complicated very quickly. Well, when you say should there be, uh, I imply from your question that you're saying should there be a law prohibiting it, which means it's a crime if you violate. So if you're saying should it be criminal to lie for the purpose of changing election results, I say, of course not. Of course it should not be criminal. Because once you do that, and understand, of course, as your audience probably knows, I have a profound distrust of of government's exercise of power. Why? Not because there's something inherently wrong with government, but because government, if they think they're right, They are permitted to use a gun to enforce their opinion. In in the case of private actors, businesses, or individuals, if I think I'm right, I I am not allowed to use a gun, the threat of force, the threat of coercion, to persuade you. I have to persuade you on the merits. So the distrust of government comes from the fact that they have powers guns and jail cells that private actors don't have. That's where the distrust comes from. Not inherently because the check, the salary check a worker gets is from the government. It's from the, the use of force. Now, as to your question, no, by no means should there be criminalization of, of the act of lying to affect an election. Because what that opens up is that opens up the, the criminal justice system being used to regulate speech about an election. And we have seen enough bad acts by governmental actors to influence an election. And indeed, just as one example, as one example, in the Hunter Biden controversy. Remember the letter signed by 51 highly ranking, with good reputations, people in the CIA and in the intelligence establishment saying that the Hunter Biden laptop claim is 
uh, looks a lot like a Russian uh, misinformation campaign. There are many people who are saying today that caused the election to go to, to go to Biden. That was signed by 51 high-ranking governmental employees. To give you just one example, why? Because it happens to be in the news. So no, I say between worrying about government misbehavior or private parties misbehavior, I say those who want to lie to influence the election have at it. And I say voters do not accept statements blindly. You have a duty as voters to sort out the truth. You have to do so in your private life. You do so when you pick a spouse. You do so when you pick an employer. You do so when you pick an employee. A thousand times a day, you have to decide if somebody's telling the truth or not. So just continue to exercise good judgment and the collective wisdom of all of society using their brain instead of their hearts will prevent liars from having an influence. I'd rather put it in the hands of free citizens to tell truth from lie rather than government. Well, and it, and it strikes me that this notion, beyond the fact that you begin to open a can of worms that can head down a slippery slope quite quickly when it comes to uh, you know deciding what is a lie, what isn't a lie, what's a mild exaggeration, and there could be degrees of lies that are really more in the arena of opinion, and so suddenly we're, we're getting down and, and literally trying to split very fine hairs, leaving that up to the government to do makes me extremely nervous. There's also the aspect of this that, and you've just touched on it, that seems to me to be kind of the uh, the easy way out. In other words, voters that are scuttling their due diligence responsibility. You know, as much as the old adage, voter be- buyer beware, this is a case of voter beware, that you should always uh, test and try the veracity of statements and claims that are being made either for, by, on behalf of a candidate or an opposing candidate to ascertain for yourself whether or not what you're hearing actually squares up with the facts. And that shouldn't be the responsibility of the government to do that because, Bob, as I suggest, at the end of the day, there can be a lot of bad actors out there, and those bad actors can also be working for the government promoting their own agenda. And all of a sudden, to have a a commission on truth-telling in an election, wow, that's not a job that... (laughs) that I think would be very trustworthy. Craig, when you play back the tape of our show, I want you to make a note of this point in the discussion because you said something that created the most complicated uh, mind picture. You said a can of worms going down a slippery slope. Craig, (laughs) I can't work that one out to save my life. But later, I'm going to call you at home and you'll explain it to me. <laughs> yes, indeed. That does conjure up quite the mental image, doesn't it? Bob Zadek oh is with God, us tonight. We are talking about um, penalties and discussions related to um, if somebody lies and exaggerates on social media with the intent to manipulate the outcome of an election, should there be penalties? There have been actual discussions about all of this. And, of course, we've seen some of the uh, purveyors of the social Social media platforms attempt to kind of come in and police and control all of this to varying degrees, 
stories of success, largely unsuccessful. And I think the broader notion here that in an effort to try and, quote unquote, fix one problem, we, we put our constitutional rights in such severe jeopardy that it goes beyond the pale. We're visiting today with Bob Zadek. He is a best-selling author. By the way, you can check out a lot of his work online at his website, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. When we come back, we'll turn a corner and talk a bit about some of the latest controversies surrounding the United States Supreme Court. That is Lifeline Continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Constitutional historian Bob Zadek lingering with us for a couple more moments to touch on an issue that uh, we'll no doubt be hearing more and more of, particularly as the uh, election cycle into 2024 heats up. That, of course, is related to the Supreme Court, not just its decisions, but the people that sit on the high court. You've undoubtedly heard that Clarence Thomas has been in the news late. There have been allegations that he has failed to disclose financial relationships with a, uh, a large Republican donor by the name of Harlan Crow, Whether or not that was inappropriate, some speculating perhaps there needs to be a, a greater set of uh, standards placed on the high court, and if so, by whom? Who d- gets to dictate and who polices that? Uh, Bob, as you've kind of watched this unfold in the news, uh, you just your, your overall thoughts in relationship to both some of the accusations of, of a lack of full disclosure levied against Clarence Thomas and whether or not there needs to be some sort of um, codified code of conduct that the Supreme Court has to answer to. I understand historically they're one of the few, if not the only court, that really doesn't per se have a stipulated code of conduct. Well, um, packed into that straightforward question is a lot of layers to be unpeeled. First of all, there's a core assumption, and I know you're posing a question because it's a provocative one, not because you have a point of view you're trying to persuade, but should there be a code of conduct? Well, that assumes that the questioner, in this case you, believes that we need a code of conduct, that somehow there is a wrong being perpetrated on society that will be remedied by a code of conduct. And uh, you mentioned as a point to be considered is, well, other high governmental officials have a code of conduct. Am I to infer from that that therefore other branches of government, say for example Congress, which has a code of conduct, has a lower misbehavior level and a higher quality of activity (laughs) than another branch. I don't think so. (laughs) So therefore, I reject the subtle assumption that a code of conduct makes things better. After all, Nixon took an oath, and yet he resigned pretty much admitting he violated the oath. So the oath didn't prevent him. People utter an oath when they get married, for better or for worse. But marriages, about half the marriages fail. That doesn't, now, would that statistic change if we had, everybody got married and didn't take that oath? 
I doubt it. So therefore, let's forget the theatrics of an oath and a code of conduct. Let's just say our job is to pick the best person for the job. Okay, and it's up to us. Second of all, uh, let's talk about Clarence Thomas. He happens to be the target. There is a context that the audience, I suspect, is aware of, but it's worthy of mentioning yet again. The left has found that the right did a better job than they could, they did, in furthering their interests through the judicial system. The, the right had a very successful 60 year, talk about the, the long view, 60 year campaign to capture, at least by, by, by political orientation, the judicial system in general and the Supreme Court in particular, and they have been effective. The left has the courts as the last branch which has not been captured, and it's making them crazy. So since the, the, the evolution of the political composition of the court takes a long time and the left is impatient, they would rather diminish the power and the prestige of the court rather than take the 50-year uh, path of trying to change the court, if indeed they could succeed. So the left is trying to reduce the standing of the court, which of the three branches of government has the highest overall respect among the voting public. And they try, and this event with Clarence Thomas, because he is so powerfully and persuasively holding on to his originalist conservative views, they want to get rid of him. Well, they can't wait for him to become too old to be on the court or to become ill or whatever. So they have to do a frontal attack. And they are therefore picking up the scraps they have, which is uh, Justice Thomas's uh, association with Harlan Crow, a billionaire. And I say billionaire with no inflection in my tone. When the left says that, they say billionaire with the same implication as if it were interchangeable with child molester um, to the left, like as an accusation. Now, one thing that's so strange about this, because they're accusing Clarice Thomas of being an ineffective or a bad jurist on the Supreme Court because he happens to be have a long-time friendship with a billionaire, and that somehow affects his decision-making, even though there is no, no claim that uh, Arlen Crow had any matters before the court, or even if he did, whether it would affect Clarence Thomas. What I find to be unspoken in the conversation, in the public debate on this issue, is this. Why is it presumed that money, more than anything else, would affect the judgment of any judge? Many judges are profoundly religious, and there have been vague suggestions about 
justices, candidates for judicial appointment. If they are Catholic, their loyalty will be more to the Pope than the country. We've heard back as far back as currently in the executive branch. So, if the accusation is loyalty to church, what about friendship? What if Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow was every bit as intimate as it is now, but Harlan Crow is not wealthy? Are they suggesting that because Clarence Thomas might, on a personal basis, like or respect Harlan Crow more than others, he should recluse himself? I.e., is money more of a motivator than friendship, than loyalty, than family? Why money? It's the left saying anybody that anybody with money is per se toxic just because they have money. And that's what's missing from the public debate. No one would criticize Clarence Thomas if he had an even more close relationship with Harlan Crow, but Harlan Crow had no money. Now, as for me, I feel a deeper sense of loyalty to a friend than to a stranger. And I'd like to think if I were a judge, I wouldn't bend over backwards to decide in favor of a friend, at least I hope I wouldn't, but certainly it's compelling, whether it's subconscious or not. So the whole thing is fake, and it's the left picking up the only scraps they have left, which is a frontal attack on the court, because they can't, uh, they can't wait for a chance to change the composition of the court as judges retire. Well, let me ask you a final question related to this, Bob, because we, we talked some while ago about an idea that Joe Biden was floating to essentially pack the court in order to manipulate it and get his own way. And, of course, that's not the first time that idea has come up. Uh, Roosevelt uh, pressed very hard for the very same thing, largely because the high court back in the 1930s had been giving thumbs down to uh, many of his alphabet soup um, programs of recovery. Would you anticipate on the heels of all of this hubbub over Clarence Thomas and the debate as to whether or not he failed to disclose, et cetera, et cetera, that there would be a renewed attempt, particularly as we go into the election year, to try and pack the court and increase the number of seats? Well, renewed, I'm going to change your question, uh, but and pretty much answer it. You say, first of all, a renewed attempt. I don't think the first attempt ever stopped. It's just, it became quiet because the prospects are dim to succeed, but it's still in in many politicians' mind as a viable weapon to use. So it's not a renewal, it's getting the musket out of the barn. The musket is always there, locked and loaded. It's just in the barn right now. Second of all, I think, I think that even those on the left understand that what goes around comes around and once you take the court and the court becomes who's ever in power packs the court the court becomes a super legislator legislature and not an independent 
co-equal branch of government, which means we no longer have a court system. Nobody believes the Supreme Court, nobody trusts it, nobody respects it, and we become, like many parliamentary systems, with a less than independent judiciary, and the country, in my opinion, cannot survive without a respected independent judiciary. It cannot survive. Yeah, uh, that I, I wholeheartedly agree. Bob Zadek with us tonight. Information again available on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We always appreciate Bob's uh, insights and uh, helps to not only broaden our understanding, but also uh, challenge a lot of our oftentimes erroneous preconceived notions. There's Bob Zadek. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One thing that typically, historically, usually, but not always, this country has respected has been an individual's right to make autonomous decisions related to their own health and health care. Although not always. A couple of cases now, as were updated by constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, tell us what's been going on up in Oregon State, specifically at Oregon. Oregon State University. I understand there's been a couple of cases now where, particularly at the height of COVID, there was almost fisticuffs over what we'll call, for want of a better term, maybe the most accurate term, forced vaccinations. Tell us more. Yeah, these are really, uh, you know, just unbelievable stories. Uh, one is about um, a student, and she was getting her doctor of pharmacy, a part of that, she was a part of that program. And uh, her name is Naomi uh, Onafrell, and uh, she, you know, operated she at the Oregon State University. She was at that program, and uh, and she was doing great. Uh, she had completed two, the first two years of it at Oregon State. Then she was going to transfer over to uh, Oregon Health and Science University uh, for the the next school year. Uh, but then she was told that no, um, you're not going to be able to transfer. Oh, and by the way, also your your pharmacy internship is canceled. Uh, solely because you are not willing to get the vax and uh, be based upon her sincere religious beliefs and convictions. Well, we at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, we're representing her. We filed a, a lawsuit and we're in the process of getting that worked out. And we're somewhat optimistic uh, that we're going to prevail uh, in that case in the not too distant future. And then we have another one, another person, Eli uh, Charganov, she, uh, a Ukrainian immigrant who his family uh, took her here at the age of two, uh, pursuit of religious freedom. How ironic! Well, <clears throat> she uh, was—you uh, know—she was at a state-run uh, hospital serving the greater Portland area for more than 15 years, and she was even working remotely uh, at the start of the pandemic. But bottom line, they said, um, "No, you've—you've uh, you've got to get the vax," and she uh, objected based on religious grounds, and uh, they said, "No." Um, we don't think your religious beliefs about uh, objecting to aborted fetal cells uh, going in your body, but that's a, we don't think that's uh, legitimate. We don't agree. Uh, denied. And so uh, we're uh, representing her. And uh, there are literally thousands across America, Craig, just like these two that we're representing right now without charge, coast to coast. And we're leading the charge for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being purged because of their faith. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated. How, how do you go about ascertaining whether or not one's religious held beliefs are adequate, serious, deep enough? I mean, that seems to be a little 
far-fetched to try and go and, and use that argument in order to, um, to prove a point against somebody of faith. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, the people we represent, we're very careful to make sure that they are sincere. Uh, we have them have engaging conversations with us. We ask them questions. Well, why do you feel that way? Well, when did you start having your, your faith? And, you know, um, and then we have them communicate that real clearly in detail, citing scriptures uh, to their employer. And so it's not like they just download some form from the Internet. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen people do that before. They sign their name and send it in. And sometimes it, it prevails and sometimes it doesn't. Our clients really prove themselves to have sincere uh, religious beliefs and convictions. And, uh, and many, uh, as you know, Craig, and as I know now with the science and all this, the studies that are out now, uh, those that had those convictions, um, it turns out there was definite merit separate from their faith as well. More information available on the web about the good work of the Pacific Justice Institute. Check them out online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And I understand if you're going to be in Orlando in May at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, you got to drop by and say hello to Brad Dacus. He is, of course, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.